Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I said, Mom, you have to drive me to the start. Um, this is going to help to set women free. And so finally I got through to her, and I could see her lips starting to quiver and tears in her eyes. And and uh, I said, you're not happy. You know, this has to change. We have to change this. So, so she said, okay, get the keys. And then she... Um, she drove me to Hopkinton. Hopkinton, the home of the start of the Boston Marathon. And on the fateful day of April 19, 1966, Roberta Bobby Gibb convinced her mom to take her to this small Massachusetts town so she could begin what would become her legendary 26.2-mile journey all the way to the storied finishing stretch down Boylston Street in Boston to change the future for women. Hello and welcome. I am Cherie Louise Turner, your producer and host, and you are listening to Strides Forward, where we share stories about running told by women. This is a very special episode honoring a momentous anniversary. April 18th, 2022 is the 50th anniversary of women finally officially being allowed to run the Boston Marathon. Many brave women's efforts contributed to this liberating change, and undeniably one of the most influential is Bobby Gibb, the very first woman to run the Boston Marathon, and she did that six years before it was officially allowed. Her courage reverberates through to this day. We are honored to feature the story of a woman whose intense curiosity and strength has challenged gender barriers not only in sport, but also, as you'll hear, in just about every single facet of life that Bobby had an interest in exploring. Over the course of her almost 80 years, Bobby has remained true to pursuing her potential. And it all began, quite literally, with her very first steps. I started running as soon as I could walk. I remember even as a toddler, my dad would take me to the park. We lived in Watertown, Massachusetts. He was then working at MIT. Uh, he's a brilliant scientist. And I remember running there. I mean, I, and I was a toddler, my memory goes way, way back for some reason I can remember. And I remember running and the feeling of the green grass and the trees and the birds and, and the world sort of whirling by when you run and this sense of energy and the sense of being connected with everything. And of course, I couldn't verbalize it then, you know, just learning how to talk, basically. But just this sense, I've always had this sense of being surrounded by this sort of energy and this sense of being alive, like, wow, 
I, I'm alive. What a gas. I never have gotten over this feeling like what a gas it is to be alive. This is amazing. What an amazing world. And and so when I would run, I would feel this kind of what I would say now, sort of this sense of universal, like almost creative power, creative force of the universe rushing through me. And I still feel that way. I mean, this is amazing. All these years later, I still I still feel that presence of some some loving force. But particularly when I would run, I would feel this. And that that's sort of been the love affair of my life is this love of being alive and this love of the universe and this and this curiosity about everything. That's why I studied science and that's you no know, that's been sort of the root of everything I've I've done is this sense of connection with a with a the mystery and the miracle. Like this is a miracle. We're living in a miracle. For heaven's sakes, guys, you know, take a look around. You're you're living in a miracle. Um, you know, and so that's been what's fueled my running, I think, all these years, is the sense of being alive. I loved to run in the woods with the neighborhood dogs, but I was a sprinter. No, and I'd run for a while, and then I'd lie down, look up at the trees and stuff. But the, even before I saw the marathon, I met a, a boy, a young guy, when I was studying at Tufts University, who ran track and field. And I had never heard of track and field. And when he said he ran for five miles, I said, five miles without stopping. But I started to run with him. And after a while, I could keep up with him. And I would, we'd go all over greater Boston running together. And then it was 1964, and the father of one of my high school friends said, well, you who love running so much should go out and see the Boston Marathon. And I said, 26.2 miles without stopping? I couldn't believe it. So I went out with my dad, and I saw these runners running. And they were amazing. They were so... They were quiet. They were sort of tap, 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 and so strong and so enduring. And I felt here at last are people who feel the same way I do about running, about what it is to be human on this earth. You know, it's just I ran alone most of the time. My friend who was a runner graduated from college and went off. Uh, he, he The Vietnam War was going and in order to avoid being drafted he joined the navy and not to be seen again for a number of years so there i was running alone and so i looked at these people running i said gosh other people run this is amazing and it just seemed to me that running 26.2 miles was sort of an ultimate human challenge and even though it was very outside the social norm for anyone to run but let, let alone for a woman to be running, a grown woman to be running in those days was thought to be improper. I mean, very weird, very far outside the social norm. So I saw this, I saw these people and something decided itself inside me that I was going to run this race. It was like falling in love. It was totally irrational. It made no sense. There was no money. I had no idea of fame. I wasn't even thinking about changing social consciousness. I just wanted to be part of this thing. 
And so that changed the way I ran because now I had a goal. I had a purpose. I had no idea how to train. I had no books, no coach, no other person I was running with. I was alone with, of course, the dogs. Uh, And I would just, well, I guess I'd just start running longer and longer distances. And I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know if my heart would give out. I didn't know if I I would have the strength. I had no idea. I was just going into the unknown. Um, But this was my goal. In the summer of 1964, I, I had a Malamute puppy. I bought a Malamute puppy, Moot. Her name was Moot. And she's very much like a wolf. And she didn't bark. She, she would howl. She'd go, oh, 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 you know, all this. So she was, a, she was my friend, and we went every, everywhere together. And I had my parents' VW van. They had gone on sabbatical. And I was going to Tufts University School of Special Studies, studying physics and philosophy and math and chemistry and biology and all these things that were thought in those days to be totally improper and useless for a woman to be studying because uh, women could hardly get into graduate school in the sciences or into medical school. My mother kept saying, you you should take a course in typing, dear, to have something to fall back on until you get married. Because in those days, the only way you had of supporting yourself was to get married, and then your husband would support you and and your children, whatever children you had. Uh, but I mean, you couldn't even get a, a credit card in your own name as a woman. You always had to have a man sign with you. I mean, so, of course, I was fuming as, at, at this as I was growing up through adolescence. And running was one way I found of sort of regaining my autonomy and having a sense of freedom. So I had the family van and my Malamute puppy. And so I headed west in the van, and my plan was to drive across the whole country and run in a different place every day. And so that's what I did. I ran the first, the first day I drove across Massachusetts and camped out in the Berkshires. And then the next day I ran in the Berkshires through the forest. I camped out at night. I didn't stay at a motel or anything. I camped out. And so as I went west, I was getting in better, better shape because I'd spend most of the day running, exploring wherever I was, up old logging trails. And I took the back roads winding across the country and I'd go up, I'd find a dirt road somewhere and I'd park and I'd go and run. And so I was getting strong. I was getting strong and as I went further west, up over the Rocky Mountains and into the wilderness and then over the Sierra Nevadas and then finally down into California. And that, that was the main core of my training for the Boston Marathon. So I came back to Boston and I was going to run the Boston Marathon in 1965, but um, in March I was running in the woods and I was coming back across the main street with a lot of dogs and there was a lot of slush and snow and ice underfoot. And one of the dogs ran out in front of a car and I ran to catch him, to get him out of the way to the car. And coming back, I didn't see the curb, and I 
and I fell and then I tried to get up and I couldn't stand. I couldn't get up. And um, so I still had hopes that I could run. And in fact, I was cantering around on crutches the next day, but no, no way uh, they didn't. They uh, luckily not broken. They were just sprained and, uh, but I couldn't run in 65. So I had a whole nother year to, uh, to keep my training. And that year I ran part of the Woodstock 100 mile, 40 miles the first day and 25 miles the second I That was in the fall of 1965. And I figured now I'm ready to run Boston. Then I actually, I actually got married and moved out to California. And uh, that was in January of 1966. And I finished my training in California on the beaches and mountains out there. And um, so I met Bill Gookin, who was part of the San Diego track and field. And uh, he, he had uh, a electrolyte replacement drink called Gookinade that was very popular at the time. And I told him I was going to run the Boston Marathon. He said, well, you've got to get a number. You know, you've got to apply. He said, I've never heard of a woman running a marathon. But, you know, it's a it's an athletic event. So and then I didn't even know I had never heard of the amateur athletic union. I had never heard of the Boston Athletic Association. I just thought it was a bunch of guys who got together in Hopkinton and ran to Boston every year. I had no idea of that. I had no idea of the whole structure of the sports world. So I wrote to the the BAA and um, I didn't hide my gender. I I signed it with my married name, and I uh, I got a letter back that said women are not physiologically able to run marathons. We can't take the medical liability. And furthermore, the Boston Marathon is a men's division race, and of course women are not qualified to run in men's division races any more than men are not qualified to run in women's division races. And so, um, see, sorry, there are no marathons for women. And so I get this letter, and here it is again. It's prejudice, this, like, you're in a box. If you're a woman, you're in this little box. You can't do what you love. You can't run this thing because you belong to a certain class of person. Like, you can't, can't, can't because you're a woman. And that was it. You have to be a housewife, period. That's it. You have, and you can teach school, you know, at the lower grades uh, until you get married. But then you're supposed to give up your job because it would be an insult to your husband to have a working wife. And this is the way it was then. And so I was infuriated already. And here it was again. So I remember I was in my apartment in downtown San Diego. My husband was off as he always was uh, at sea and I was there alone I get this letter and I, I'm furious I just let out a yell I crumple up the letter throw it across the room and I take off running and I run all the way to Del Mar to the Del Mar Beach is about 20 miles away and I don't know why I mean I'm just running off my steam and then I spent I actually spent the night on the beach I lay down on the sand slept on the beach 
that night and the next morning I woke up and I said, I have to run, all the more reason to run. I have to run the Boston Marathon because now it's going to be a social statement. And I saw a crack in the armor. I said, if I can prove this misconception about women wrong, this will throw into doubt, into question all the other false beliefs and lies and misconceptions about women that have been used to subjugate women. And so then my running took on a, uh, a whole new dimension. Now I was going to make a social statement. And now it became even more important that I run not only for my own challenge and satisfaction, but to change the way people thought about women and to change the way women thought about themselves because a lot of women had bought into this stuff, including my mother, who was incredibly frustrated. She was an intelligent, beautiful woman, and, and the way she dealt with it was by taking tranquilizers and sipping wine to deal with the, the sadness and the tragedy of not being able to live your own life, not, not being able to follow your dreams, not being able to actualize your potentials. No, and so here it was again. So now I was up against society in a big way because I was way outside the social norm anyway, and now I was going to challenge these social norms. And so I took a bus back across the country a few days before the marathon. And so so I got to Boston, and I got off, I got off at St. James Square where the bus unloaded. I called my parents and they said, where are you? And I said, Boston. What are you doing in Boston? I've come to run the Boston Marathon. Well, they actually thought I was nuts. My dad thought I was delusional. And they came and picked me up, very concerned about me. And that next day, my dad, who was really worried about me, uh, went storming out of the house. He had to go to a sailing regatta. And my mother was there. And I said, Mom, you have to drive me to the start. Um, this is going to help to set women free. And so finally I got through to her, and I could see her lips starting to quiver and tears in her eyes. And and uh, I said, you're not happy. You know, this has to change. We have to change this. So, so she said, okay, get the keys. And then she... Um, she drove me to Hockenden, and um, we went we went um, out along the race route so I could see, get an idea of what the course was, and she dropped me off in the outskirts of Hopkinton, and for the first time in my life, she was on my side. She'd spent her entire life trying to get me to conform because she thought it was for my own good to conform to these deadening social norms that had ruined her life. And so we hugged for the first time in years. <laughs> I thought, wow, my mother's finally on my side. And and um, so that that was now I had to figure out how to get into the marathon without, I thought I might be arrested because I knew I was doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. And so I had on my brother's Bermuda shorts and a blue hooded sweatshirt and knew boys' running shoes, which was a huge mistake. I, I didn't know you were supposed to break them in. And 
So I ran all around Hopkinton, and I saw where the men were gathering, and I loved the marathon. It was like a spring celebration of popcorn vendors and balloons and kids and people, and as the start of the race drew near, I crouched in the bushes as close to the start as I could get. The gun went off. I let about half the pack go by because I didn't want to get in the way of the front runners, and then I jumped in, and very quickly the men behind me realized I was a woman and again they could have easily shouldered me out and I knew I had to keep it upbeat and friendly and non-threatening and so I smiled and when I said I I wanted to take off the sweatshirt because I was getting hot but I was afraid if they saw I was a woman they'd throw me out they said we won't let them throw you out it's a free road and so they were supportive they said I wish my girlfriend would run the men runners were really, really nice. And the police that I had been avoiding, when I went zooming by, they said, hey, girly, hey, slow down so we can catch you, and this sort of thing. So I ran along with the men, and I felt as though I should appear graceful, and that, <laughs> this was weird, that that all, everybody was being so nice, and they were, you know, they were hollering and saying at a go and all this stuff and I wanted to wave to everyone say thank you thank you thank you you know and here I am trying to run this race and I feel like I'm really engaged with the spectators you know I want to keep waving to them and saying thank you so nice of you you know and then we got to Wellesley and the women knew I was coming because by this time the press had they had figured out who I was and were following along the story, History in the Making, and that was being broadcast on a local radio station, My Progress, so they, they, the woman at Wellesley knew, knew where I was, and they knew I was coming, and when I got there, they let a huge scream, and um, they were, you know, jumping up and down, and, and yelling, and laughing, and crying, and this one woman over to the side with a bunch of kids around her. She's going, Ave Maria, Ave Maria. It's like, I knew at that moment that things were never going to be the same, that this that this really was going to change the way people thought about women. And these women knew it too. And Diana Chapman Walsh was then a student, later became the president of Wellesley. And she wrote uh, later, on the 30th anniversary of my run, she wrote, a very moving story about that moment. And she said, we all knew that something had changed and we're not going to go back to the way we were before. So I ran on into Boston. My blistered feet were beginning to hurt me. And after a while, uh, the, the last few miles, I was my feet hurt so badly. I took my shoes off for a while and ran, but that didn't work. I put them back on again. I was just really tiptoeing along. My feet hurt so bad, I could barely, barely run. I just gritted my teeth and kept on running because I had this huge weight of responsibility on me as I knew I had to finish that race because I, here I was making this statement, and if I failed to finish, that would set women back. So I had to finish, so I ran on Hereford Street and then on to Boylston Street, and I go down that final stretch and the crowds were just roaring, the press trucks were rolling along, and I get to the finish, I cross the finish line, and the governor of Massachusetts 
John Volpe comes down and shakes my hand, and then the press start talking with me, and I was going to go in to have the post-marathon stew with the men, and I got to the door, and the guard says, no women allowed, and all the guys were outraged, but she just ran the marathon with us. Sorry, no women allowed. It's like, ah, here it is again. So I took a taxi home, and I get to my street, and there are cars all up and down the street, and I think, oh, God, somebody's having a party. I get to my house. They're all at my house. It's the press is there. They figured out where I lived, and my poor parents, my poor parents are standing there like, what is this daughter of ours done now? And the phone is ringing. No, congratulations on your daughter. You must be very proud. And and then my parents had done a complete turnaround. They they really like, wow, from she's nuts, she's delusional. What are we going to do with this impossible daughter who runs in the woods with the dogs? And to, wow, you you really did something great. <laughs> so my parents were really very proud. And they had their photographs taken with me. And you know, so it's like my dad's going, yeah, we knew she could do it and all this stuff. And, you know, I put my arm around him and I say, it's those gib legs, dad, you know. And so that really, it changed the way my parents thought about me. It, it also changed. It was front page headlines, not back on the sports place. It was front page headlines. The next day it went out around the world. And we, my parents had some friends that were in Malaysia who read it in the paper in Malaysia. I mean, it was all over the world. It went out by wire. A girl has done the impossible and run the Boston Marathon. And it really was a pivotal event in changing the way people thought about women. It's it's like a lot of people, I mean, they had a hard time changing their stereotypical views, like women bake cookies, they don't run marathons. So here it was. And it also showed that if a shapely blonde housewife, which is the way the papers describe me, a shapely blonde housewife could run a marathon, anyone could. Uh, it really, it really did, and it did what I wanted it to do. And uh, one thing I learned is that if you have a goal and you work at it a little bit every day, you can accomplish your goal. And it was probably the first time in my life I'd set a really big goal for myself and then methodically and somewhat stubbornly kept right on track, totally committed to that goal, even though there there wasn't any particular external reward that I knew of at the time. And because my inner directive, and I look back now and say, how did I follow? How did I dare to follow this inner directive that was so contrary to what I was supposed to be doing as a woman so persistently, day in and day out? When I think back now at my younger self uh, coming into this world, and so here at the end of the marathon, was the victory, the completion. I did it. I've run this race and I was been, I've been part of it. It was just this sense of belonging to these people, to the race, to the other runners, to the spectators, you know, to, to the whole thing. The second year I came back, 
1967, everybody knew I was coming. I flew back. My parents drove me to the start. That year, I started on the starting line, totally open. Nobody tried to stop me. And I was being interviewed, and everybody knew there was going to be a woman running that race. And so I ran. That year, it was very cold, and I had I was sick. I had the flu. But I knew I had to run anyway because there were still people, even after I ran, even after, you know, newspaper reporters had followed me the whole way, even after it had been on the radio, even though, you know, hundreds of runners and thousands of spectators saw me, there were still people who couldn't believe that a woman could have run the marathon. So I said, okay, I'll run it again. And there was another woman running. I finished about, she finished about an hour behind me. And the next year, there were five of us women running. And so that that was the third year that I won. And all of us women that ran ran before 1972 were running in what was later called the Women's Pioneer Division Marathon. And it was um, it was the marathon before it was accredited by the Amateur Athletic Union, which didn't happen until 1972. There was finally a women's division, uh, Boston Marathon, because of Nina Kusick. And she is the one who brought the petition before the AAU to accredit women's marathons. And of course, fittingly, she also won in 1972. She was so instrumental in opening up women's marathoning and I and I want to make sure she gets lots of credit. Bobby wasn't even 30 years old by the time she ran her third Boston Marathon, and it lit a spark that helped transform running opportunities for women. And, as it would turn out, this was just the start of Bobby pushing up against gender boundaries. I was taking on society at a lot of different levels because I was doing a lot of things that women either weren't supposed to do or were thought incapable of, like mathematics and physics and chemistry. And in a way, I was challenging myself, but I was also challenging the social norms and the inhibitions that are put on women. Women can learn mathematics perfectly well Women can learn physics perfectly well, I mean, for heaven's sakes. So that's what I was doing all along. And then I was pre-med, and I'd done really well. I had good grades. And when I was, and I was, so I was applying to medical school. So I went for my interview, and my, the person, the man who was interviewing me said, you're too pretty to go to medical school. You'll upset the boys in the lab, ha-ha. And now... We have to save the places in, in medical school for men who are actually going to practice medicine. You're obviously just going to get married and you know, have kids, raise some kids. So that was medical school. And then what do I do? No, then I remarried. I, I had divorced my first son and remarried a doctor. Finally, I had done what I was supposed to do. <laughs> I married a really nice doctor that I was in love with. But I ended up reading all his medical texts and falling in love with neuroscience. And so 
I studied neuroscience on my own. I read all the textbooks. And then when my husband and I got back to Boston, my husband called around and said, my wife would like to work uh, in a neuroscience lab. And he was told, Jerry Letvin, Jerome Letvin, he's at MIT, he's the best guy anywhere. He's the best guy in Boston. He's probably the best guy in the world. Go talk to him. So I went and talked to Jerry Letvin, and he said, have you ever done anything out of the box, anything that shows an ability to think creatively? And I said, well, I was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon. And he said, ah, you're hired. He says, you're hired. Your job is to be an integral part of the lab, in which I was. And so I spent 10 years, pretty much 10 years, working with him. And in the meanwhile, I, I had a baby. And, and I was also going to night law school because... I wanted to make a living. I knew I was married to a doctor and everything, but I wanted to be able to support myself. And then so I got my law degree. And so I practiced law for about 18 years. Bobby's achievements are many and still growing. But in the public eye, she will certainly always be best known for the three hours and 21 minutes it took her to run from Hopkinton to Boston in 1966 when she helped pave the way for women to be able to compete at that distance. On the occasion of the 30th anniversary of Bobby's historic run, the Boston Athletic Association, or the BAA, the organization that puts on the race, officially recognized Bobby's three victories. She was given a medal with the dates of her wins inscribed on it, and her name was added to the monument in Copley Square near the finish of the Boston Marathon, which features the names of all of the winners of every single Boston Marathon in its history. And then, just last year, in October 2021, Bobby was honored yet again. A sculpture in her likeness was unveiled in Hopkinton and will be the first to honor a woman along the Boston Marathon course. And this time, it wasn't only Bobby's running accomplishments that were featured. And of course, I'm an artist. I you know I paint and I do sculptures and everything. And I, I do all these uh, athletes and running sculptures and so forth. And uh, they wanted me to do a sculpture. And I said, I'll do one of Joan Benoit. And then Joan Benoit said, no, it should be you. And I said, oh, God, no, I can't do it myself. I'll do a, a generic woman. And then finally, the 26.2 Foundation took over the project and said, no, you're going to do one of you or we're not going to do it. So I said, okay. So I said, it was very strange to do a sculpture myself. I'm, it's the first time I'd had an actual model. And so we unveiled her and uh, she, she was bronze. I mean, you can really feel this like, wow, she feels like she's alive, only she's bronze. It was really a weird feeling. It's me coming down Wilson Street, that final stretch um, with my shoes and my brother's Bermuda shorts and my tank top bathing suit. And I had a, my hair pulled back and a little bit of a t ponytail. So it's that pose just coming down Boylston Street in 1966, that view of me finishing, coming down the home stretch alone. Coming down the home stretch all alone.
But now, as the decades have passed, Bobby is joined in spirit by the multitude of women who have been able to run in her footsteps. And I have been lucky enough to be among them. Thank you, Bobby Gibb. And of course, I am truly grateful that Bobby shared her story on this podcast. Being able to feature the words of such a legendary woman is an honor. If you'd like to visit the Bobby Gibbs sculpture, which is called The Girl Who Ran, it's currently on view at the Hopkinton Center for the Arts. Its permanent location will be at the corner of Main Street and Hayden Row Street in Hopkinton, which is equidistant between the current starting line and where the Boston Marathon started when Bobby ran. Plans are to have it installed in the fall of this year. Thank you for listening. We love sharing these stories, but we truly could not do it without you. You listening and sharing the podcast is how we grow. So please hit the subscribe button and please share the podcast with your friends. I'd love for these stories to inspire and inform as many people as possible, and word of mouth is a gift to us in this mission. I also welcome you to visit our website, stridesforwardpodcast.com. And we are active on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, at Strides Forward. It's our handle in both places. Also, I never make this show by myself. Cormac O'Regan does all the original music, and he does sound design. He does that from his studio in Cork, Ireland. April Mariner of Bonfire Collaborative does all the design work for the show, including the website, merch, logo, and all the social media. April comes to you from Truckee, California, and you can find her at bonfirecollaborative.com. And yep, I am Cherie Louise Turner. I am coming to you once again from my closet in Somerville, Massachusetts. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, we all wish you many healthy, joyful strides forward. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.